Quite a few years ago now, we took a family trip to New York City, and the kids were pretty small at that point. And Harrison, he was around five years old, and my job at this one point was to kind of walk with him and make sure he stayed with us. Now, if you've ever been to Manhattan in, in New York City, you know how crazy busy people everywhere. I mean, just hordes of people just coming at you all the time. And and we had tethered him to like this little leash thing that we hooked to him. And so we could actually, so he wouldn't get away and wouldn't, we wouldn't lose him. And so he was right there. But the problem was, as we walked down the street, if he even moved a little bit away from us, then obviously that uh, tether, that, that leash would be out across the sidewalk. People would be bumping into him, bumping into it. And it was just terrible. And so finally, I you know, got him close to me, but people were still just running into him. So finally I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do, Harrison. I want you to get behind me, and I want you to just hold on to my belt, and I'm just going to clear a path, and you just stay right behind me in my shadow, and we'll just walk this way. And so everyone who would have been hitting Harrison and knocking into him, all of a sudden they were coming to me and bumping into me or avoiding me. And that illustration to me really represents well what we're going to talk about today, our union in Christ, our union with Christ. Because I read this quote uh, many years ago in a book by Rankin Wilborn called Union with Christ, and he said this, he said, everything that was supposed to hit us Even the judgment of God for our sins hit Jesus. He blazed a path against hostile forces, seen and unseen. He made a way to glory. One man made a way for all to live. We are hidden in Christ. We are hidden in Christ. Describes our union with Christ. And the New Testament gives many references to this really difficult concept to to grasp with our minds, because it is at a different level. It's, a, it, it's, a, it's mysterious. But the Scripture gives us many illustrations of it, and, and it cites it many times. But today in the book of John, chapter 14, we have the very first mention of our union with Christ. In fact, let's just read the verse, and then we'll pray, and then we'll work through the passage. In verse 20, Jesus said, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And so this beautiful picture that just really transcends our finite understanding that when we're born again, we are truly joined to the person of Christ. We have a union with Christ. That's literally three words that change everything about our existence, our purpose in life. And so let's pray, and we'll look again at John chapter 14. Father God, we thank you for your word that you've given to us. God, we'll see today in this text just how precious it is that you gave the apostles everything they needed to record the scriptures for us so that we can have life, eternal life, and we can believe in your name. And God, I pray that you will help us as we know that the things that come at us in this life can just beat us down. And the things that we expect don't always turn out the way that we had hoped. And the things that we dream of fall short, and there's many unexpected things that come in this life. And God, you are our consistent thing, and help our faith to be strong. Even as the passage I read this morning, I believe, help my unbelief. God, maybe there's people in the room like that today that just need help in their faith. And I pray today that your word will strengthen their faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this passage of Scripture, this group of of chapters here, 14 through 17, 
We refer to this as Jesus' farewell discourse. And it's some of the literally most amazing teaching in all of Scripture. And so Jesus is telling more than likely now just his 11 disciples in the room that he will be leaving them very soon. And he gives them these incredible promises that we looked at last week. Let's just briefly recap. Verse 12, Jesus told them, truly, truly. And when Jesus says, truly, truly, at the beginning of a statement, what he's saying is, the words that follow, these are extremely important. These are of special importance, and they need to pay attention to it. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And we looked at this last week. This is uh, an amazing, amazing claim, an amazing promise to us. And last week we said that this isn't about comparing the works that we do to the works that Jesus did. That's not what it's about. This is all of Jesus' works. This is Jesus' post-glorification works are going to be greater than his pre-glorification works, meaning that the things that Jesus does after he ascends back into heaven are greater than the works that he did while he was on earth, and he's going to do those through us. How in the world is that possible? It's this idea in verse 20, and this idea that Paul picks up on and teaches throughout the New Testament, it's our union with Christ. And we see that this, uh, throughout the book of Acts, is truth, that this incredible growth the church experience, just incredible growth, right off the bat, that the disciples begin to proclaim the word, share the word. Here's these disciples who run and hid when they were scared before Jesus was crucified. Now that Jesus is resurrected and he's back ascended into heaven, then they just have this supernatural power, this supernatural gifting of the Holy Spirit, and they just change the world. And not only them, but then future generations, the early church just grows and grows and grows. And we sit here today in light of their uh, Holy Spirit gifted ability to share the gospel. So when Jesus said greater works, he's talking about the quantity of the works. So much more the gospel went out across the world than the quality of the work. And we talked about that. And he said this helper, the Holy Spirit, would come and he would no longer just be with believers, that he would indwell the Holy Spirit. So post-resurrection, Christ's Spirit would indwell believers and he would give the disciples everything they needed to fulfill the mission that he had called them to fulfill. And we talked at great length about that. If you missed that message, I encourage you to go back and listen to it last, uh, from last week and listen to it again and, and as this all fits together and this passage just connects together. And so we praise God for that, but let's think about where the disciples are because it's really important that we remember the context of what Jesus is saying. He's talking to the disciples and they're scared to death, okay? The Holy Spirit is with them, but this Holy Spirit is not in them at this point, okay? And so as Jesus is talking to them, they feel this heavy burden that Jesus is going to be leaving them, and Jesus has told them at least three very, very clear times in the Gospels. We have a written account the fact that he told them straight out, he's going to die. All right, now they don't fully compute that. They don't understand that completely, that Jesus has to die. I mean, in their mind, Jesus is a king who's ascending to a throne, not somebody who's going to go to a cross and die. And so just in a few hours, Jesus is going to be arrested and killed. 
and how do they, how are they going to handle this situation? Well, look at verse 18. We'll pick up in verse 18 where we left off last week. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. He says, I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, Scholars, commentators are mixed on exactly what Jesus is referring to here. He's talked a lot about the Holy Spirit coming. Is this another reference to him sending the Holy Spirit? Or back in verse 4, he's also talked about the second coming. He talked about he's going to return. Remember, he's, he's gone away to build rooms, to build uh, uh, places for us after our death, after he returns, after his second coming. He's gone away for that. He's preparing this place. He's going to come again. Is he referring to that? Or is he speaking of post-resurrection? And I would fall in the camp that, that believes that this is Jesus is giving them immediate comfort for what's about to happen over the next few days. And so Jesus is speaking to his disciples about returning to them after the resurrection. Look in verse 19. He says, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you, you eleven, you will see me because I live, you also will live. And so Jesus, what he's saying here, how does the world not see him? Jesus' ministry to the world is now over. His ministry, once the cross and he resur resurrects, it, he's not going to go out and minister to the masses any longer. After the resurrection, in fact, Jesus only reveals himself to his disciples or those who, because of his self-disclosure, they become his disciples. So Jesus' ministry after the resurrection shifts to just to the disciples. And so the, the world doesn't see him any longer, but he's coming back to them. He's not going to string them and leave them as orphans. He's going to come back to them. And he says, because of this, because I live, you also will live. So I, he's, Jesus is saying, in a roundabout way, he's saying, I'm going to die, but I'm going to come back to you. I won't leave you abandoned as orphans. And because he lives, I think he's giving them, and he's going to really, really, over the next couple of chapters, really dive deep into some of these concepts. But he says, because I live, you also live, that Jesus' death and resurrection, as we know, and we can sit here and testify to today, if we're born again, that it changes everything. We're spiritually alive because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're made alive, for, and, and then also we're given eternal life. And so he says, I'm not going to abandon you. And because I live, you will live also. And then verse 20, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. So he points to his resurrection, he points to his ascension, he says, things are going to change in that day, you will know this is true. And so he's telling his 11 that after he returns, after the resurrection, they will know without a doubt that he is so much more than just the Messiah. So much more than just a king of Israel. They will understand when they see him alive after his death, they will understand his divinity. They will understand that he's truly God. And I know we, we look at the disciples and we think, how do they not get this stuff? But it, it was so far out of just their expectations of what the Messiah was supposed to do that they could not imagine a suffering servant as Isaiah did predict. They could not understand Jesus going to the cross. But once he returns to them, it will all make sense. And so Jesus says, in that day you will know. And so following his death and resurrection, and he sends the Holy Spirit, 
and he's enabled them to do greater things, they experience this union with Christ that they never had experienced before when he was living on earth with them. And see, that's why Jesus is able to tell them that it's to, back in, or up in, in chapter 16, we'll see, it's to their advantage, Jesus says, that I go away. Just, just think about that for a second. Just ponder that. Jesus is here with us. He stands up and he walks up here and he says, look, it's to your advantage that I'm leaving today. I'm going to leave, but you're better off. You're in better shape. Greater things. You're going to do greater things that you've done with me sitting here. That's, it's remarkable and it's difficult to believe, but it shows us all that we have in Jesus Christ. It shows us as we sit here today, post-resurrection, post-glorification, we sit here today with the Holy Spirit and he's given us so much that sometimes we just fail to recognize what we have. I, I just want to let this illustration just set with us for a second and I just want to let us see it visually because it may help us just, uh, and, and this is not deep, and this is not some special illustration, but I just want us to think about it for a second. I want us to think about what Jesus said. Jesus said that, that he said that he's in the Father. Jesus said, I'm in the Father. So Jesus, Jesus in the Father, okay? Jesus and the Father are one. We know that to be true. But then what does he say next? He says, you, he says, you are in me. He says, you're in me, and he said, I am, in, I am in you, the Holy Spirit in you. And look at, think about that. Think about the security and the identity changes that happens when this takes place. Post-glorification, Jesus sends his spirit, everything changes, and all of a sudden, not only is Jesus, they understand Jesus is in God. They didn't fully get that. Now they get that. They understand Jesus is in God. But the fact that we're in Jesus in some mystical, supernatural way, and the Holy Spirit then is within us, what do we have to fear in a situation like this? And, and secondly, how does this not define who we are? As we're tucked away in here so securely with the Spirit in us, us in Christ, Christ in God. I mean, think about it for a second. Think about your job, all right? Your job is very, very important to you, I'm sure. It provides for your family. It gives you money to spend. You get up every day, most of you five, six days a week. You go to your job. It's super important to you. And for somebody who spends that much time at work, even if you know that you got to live a balanced life, your job defines you greatly. But here's the news. You're not going to work that job and truthfully, you're not going to work any job forever. And so many people build their identity around their career, their job. And the first thing that you want to tell people is, hey, I'm, I'm so-and-so. What do you do? I do this. What do you do? I do that. That's a natural way to correspond and, and communicate with people. But sadly, we take that as our identity. And think about other things. Think about children. You, you make children your identity, your family your identity. Our lives revolve oftentimes around our kids. But Again, note that your kids will not be with you forever, all right? They will move along, hopefully, right, um, out of the house, go at some point, and you will be there, and if your identity is built around your children, that's obviously not going to be a very durable identity for you. You think about all the things that you build your identity, nothing compares to who you are in Christ, Jesus. 
It doesn't compare. Your work isn't in you, and you're not in your work, and your work's in God. That's, your work might be in you, and you might be into your work, but your work has nothing to do with being in God and in Christ. Now, you should use that as an opportunity to share Christ, but it's not who you are. This is who you are if you've been born again. You are secure in Jesus. You have nothing to fear because he is in you, he's with you, and he defines who you are. This is the reality that Paul does so, so remarkably just talks and speaks about in verses like Galatians 3, where he says, For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He's got this picture of you put on Christ. And in Galatians 2.21 that I quote a lot, for I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ put his spirit within us. Christ lives in me. I no longer live. When you look, you don't see me is the goal. The goal is you see Jesus reflected. You see God reflected through me because I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, we don't get saved and go to heaven. This life that we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we're never, ever separated from the triune God. We are secure. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. We are wrapped up and wrapped in and knit together with God in Christ. What a beautiful and wonderful picture of how our identity in Christ and this union with Christ changes everything. So let's think about it. If, we, if that is our position in Christ, how does it reveal itself? How does it show itself to the world and to others? Look at verse 21, next verse. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he, is, it, he it is that loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then not just once, just two verses later, Jesus says it again in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And so the evidence of this union for Christ with Christ is our obedience to Christ. It's our obedience. Whoever has my commands, he says, and that's just not having them in your possession. It's not just holding them. Having his, his commandments means that you grasp them, that you own them. They're, they're part of who you are. And so it's not an external list that you look out and you keep, okay, here's the list of things I shouldn't do and should do. No, in Christ, Ezekiel prophesied many, many years before Christ, I'm going to write my commands and my laws upon your heart. I'll give you a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. This was no longer just an external set of laws. These are laws that are within us, that as the word comes to us and within us through the Holy Spirit's power, it becomes part of who we are. Jesus dwelling in us by his spirit is a guarantee that we can and we will change. Those sins, those deviances, those things that have had your number for years and years and years, God has the power to change those things. And knowing yourself through the gospel gives you that power. Knowing yourself through the gospel gives you the power to conquer sin in your life. Knowing your identity, rehearsing your identity, 
being aware of it. You know, sadly, most churches, many churches, when somebody comes to Christ, makes a profession of faith in Christ, their first instinct is to teach them all the things to do. All right? Now, doing's critical, right? We, we have to do. We, we do things for God's kingdom. But I think sometimes we may get that backwards. We should, with earnest, begin to teach new believers their union with Christ, their identity in Christ, because it's out of that identity is the doing that happens that comes with joy and gladness versus an external set of commands that we strive to keep, and there's no pleasure or little pleasure in it because it's something we're trying to earn or obtain versus just allowing who we are in Christ just to grab hold of the very core of us and change us from the inside out. So Jesus says that we're adopted into his family. And this is not in name only, that we've been given the Spirit who guides us and forms us into the likeness of Christ. And so the same Christ who overcame every temptation and was perfectly obedient in his life, that Jesus is now in you. And so obedience to God's will is the fruit of this union with Christ. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So Judas, he's concerned about Jesus' previous statement. I doubt he even heard what Jesus said in verse 21 because he's thinking, okay, I don't get this. How are you going to show us but not to the world? This is referring back to verse 19. Yet in a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And it's a good question. It's an honest question. He wants to know, how is this possible for this to happen? And so, again, the disciples expect Jesus to just startle the world with his great power and splendor. Again, this expectations. They're, expecting, they're totally expecting Jesus to ride into Jerusalem, conquering king on a horse with an army of people. And so how can we just fathom the fact, Jesus, that the world will see you no more? All right, that's the whole point of this, right? For the world to see you, but you're saying only of us, we'll, we'll be the only ones to see you. And so the disciples continue to look for this political victory that would be visible to everyone. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way it's going to happen, as I explained earlier. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So the world doesn't have faith. They don't see Jesus, and they won't be cohabitating with Jesus. When he uses the expression, I'm going to come and make our home with you, get that picture that Jesus is just resting in you and on you and through you, and he's for you. That's the strength of our union with Christ, who we are. And so those with faith will see Jesus. Those who put their trust in him will see him. They will love him. They will obey him. And he dwells in them. But over the last 2,000 years since Jesus came, many people have placed their faith in Jesus, but many more have refused to believe in him. And he doesn't show himself to them. He doesn't reveal himself to them. He shows himself to those people who have faith and who love him. And this is not some generic love. He says it's a, it's a real relationship. 
We talked about this a few weeks ago, and we're going to continue to talk about this through chapters 16 and 17. It's a real relationship. It's a love relationship where Jesus comes and he makes his home with us. In verse 23, and he says, make our home with him. He will come to him and make our home with him. Christ in us. Three words that change everything. Union with Christ. Christ in us. And home, interestingly, is the same word that Christ is going to make his home with us. It's the same word that he used back in verse 2 where he talked about in his father's house there's many rooms. The same word that he uses there. So Jesus is making a home for us within us and then also within him and also physically for eternity. What security is that? Lord, how is it that we will know you will manifest to us and not to the world? And so look at verse 24. Whoever does not love me, Jesus reiterates again, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. And so again, Jesus makes it clear. Disobedience, from a negative side, disobedience is a sign of a lack of faith in and lack of love for Jesus. You can't sugarcoat this. You can't write it away, dismiss it. He makes it clear, those who are in Christ obey Christ. They, their lives desire to please God. Not perfectly, as we talk about often. Sanctification is a process. But there should, there be, there should be this internal just conviction when sin is making, we're making allies with friends. We're, we're getting comfortable with sin. If we're just at peace with sin, that's a red light warning that should be going off in your mind. Why is that the case? Why am I okay with this? It's a battle that we fight because disobedience is a sign of a lack of faith in and a lack of love for Jesus. And then Jesus says, these things have I spoken to you, verse 25, while I am still with you. Jesus knows it's going to be a very, very difficult next few days for the disciples. And they will find hope and encouragement as they remember these words in the short term. They need these words when the Roman soldiers take Jesus away, when Jesus is taken and put on a cross and nailed to the cross. They're going to need to reflect on and think about these words. But I love verse 26. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he's going to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all, all the things that I've said. All the things that I've said. And so he's telling this small group of men sitting in this room, scared to death, confused, perplexed, unsure what the future looks like. He's saying, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to come back to you. But look, I'm telling you something far greater than just the next few days or the next few weeks. Something supernatural is going to occur. This union with me that you're going to be so better off after I leave than me being here with you because of this relationship that you have now with me. And he says, this Holy Spirit that I put within you, he's going to re help you recall all these things that I've been teaching you. All right? Think about that for a second. Three chapters of in-depth teaching here, and the Gospels were written quite a few years after Jesus ascended back into heaven. At the minimum, 15 years after Jesus ascended, uh, some as many as 30, 40 years even maybe a little longer after Jesus ascended back into heaven. And so the disciples, of course, rehearsed these things. They 
verbally, orally taught these things. But look at the, 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 the promise that Jesus gave was fulfilled as we sit here today and read these red letters in our Bible. The fact that they remembered supernaturally, the Spirit gave them the ability to just remember the details of Jesus' teaching. And we sit here today as the benefactors of what they did and what they learned through the Holy Spirit's power. And as we study the Word and as we just take the Word and as one of the prophets in the Old Testament says, we eat this Word, we eat this Word, we just take it within us. And that's the words of Jesus as recorded by the apostles in that room. And they went out from that room and changed the world. So the Spirit, Jesus is saying, agrees with the teaching of Jesus, and he helps you recall the teaching of Jesus. You're not running off on your own making stuff up. You're valuing and, pray, and prizing these words that Jesus gave us that the apostles, through the power of the Holy Spirit, recorded for us. What an amazing, an amazing thing. And that's why verses like Colossians 3.16, we say a lot here at Grace Church. Look at it. It'll be on the screen. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And then you're singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving to God in your heart. And so you're allowing the word of Christ just to be at home in you. And so this is how we allow our union with Christ to control our lives, is we allow the word to be at home within us. And we let the word of God just sink in deep to us, and we just let it dwell in us richly. And we understand the gospel. This is the gospel, that Jesus died for us, that we have Jesus blazing that trail, and we're in his shadow because left to ourselves, we could not take the judgment of God. But Jesus stood in our place, and we stood in his shadow, and we say, I need a Savior. I need a Lord. And he is the one that gives us the freedom to experience all that he accomplished in Christ, on the cross, in Christ. We have so much that we fail to recognize. In Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing. So you're struggling with those sins. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The gospel message, the words of Jesus, and this book as a whole. You allow this book to sink deep in you. You make it a part of your daily routine of being in the Word and then asking God, God, help this not just to be uh, 10 minutes and finished. Help this to dwell richly within me today so I can live the way that you desire me to live and I can be the person that you've made me to be already. And so our head application, Jesus in you is your deepest reality and your truest identity. Look at that for a second. Look at it on the screen. Jesus is your deepest reality and your truest identity. And you need faith to grab hold of that. And I need faith to grab hold of that because we're going to walk right out of here and we're going to assume a bunch of other identities that want to dismiss Jesus or at least push him down and raise these other identities up. And Jesus says, this is who you are. This is the truest identity that you can have. And then our heart application Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, there is no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, 
the happier we are. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. The more that we realize this is true, and the more that we embrace this and reflect on it and spend time with Jesus every single day, the more joy that we have in this life. We feel it. And how you feel it is by allowing the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to walk out of here maybe for a few hours? You're going to contemplate, and then it's right back into your old routine. Or are you going to allow the Word to be in an, a pivotal part of your life, not just so I can check it off my list, but so that I can live out my truest identity, so I can be who God's empowered me and called me to be, so I can make a difference in this world, because it's possible. Because Peter, Andrew, James, John, Judas, not Iscariot, name them all, they changed the world through the power of the Holy Spirit because of their union with Christ. You can change your world through God's power if you're willing to assume the identity that he's already given you. Let's pray. Father God, we need faith to believe that you truly, in some powerful mysterious way that you live within us. And we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we sit here today under the authority of your word and we feel what we read and we feel what Charles Spurgeon said. We do feel the power of this union with Christ. But it's so easy to walk out and just move on and just have a gap between what we want and desire and what the reality of our life is. And God, I pray you'll use our church body to minister to one another, help us to come alongside each other and encourage, help those who are stuck deep in the power of sin and deception and lies. God, I pray that you will break the power of Satan over their life through their identity in you, who you've declared them to be. They're free in you, God. And I pray that they will refute the lies of the devil with the truth of God's word, with your word, God, just like Jesus did. And God, I pray that you'll make us victorious so we can live lives full of joy, full of hope, full of expectation, that you will return and gather us together again. In Jesus' name we pray.